Can you hear me? Yes, there it is. Okay. Um, okay, well, just before we get started, I want to just explain what this time from the front is going to look like this year, since it'll be a little bit different this fall. Uh, obviously, we're starting off with the teaching time first, and it's going to be interactive. So in the past, we have taught you for 20 to 30 minutes on an exposition, like kind of, in other words, kind of preached. Um, This year we're going to be interactive. We're going to go over some of the questions in your study guide together as a big group, and some of them will be in your small group. So just wanted to to prepare you for that. Um, Be ready to to speak up and engage, go back and forth. Also, I want to say that I'm going to try to repeat your answers. So I'm just going to like give you the disclaimer that if that seems weird as we go along, there's two purposes. One, for people who can't hear the answer, I'm going to try to repeat it. Number two, because we're trying to record this, and, and that's really helpful to some people who can't be here. And if you guys just answer, they won't hear it at all. So we'll give it an attempt and see if it's going to work to record it. Um, okay, so that's like the, the, the basic stuff before we get started. Um, this morning, we will go until about 10, 40, 10.40, and then you'll have time in your small groups to discuss a few more questions, a few questions that we're going to add to the material um, that your small group leaders have, and then we'll pray and be dismissed this morning. So we'll be walking through both the introduction and chapter one this morning, and before we do that, I've got to tell you what happened to me this morning. I was in the mad dash of trying to get everybody all the places that they need to go in a morning, right? And I had showered, and so I felt pretty good about myself, because that doesn't always happen before I take the kids to school. So um, I'm trying to, like, put the last things in the kids' lunches, and I walk down my basement stairs, and there's, like, this ledge that came out of nowhere. I have lived in my house for 11 years, and I've had some trouble with these stairs, let me tell you. These are not good stairs. I've fallen down them. I've slid down them. I've fallen up them. My husband asked me the other day, you've never fallen up the stairs, right? Yes, I actually have fallen up the stairs, but I have never hit my head on this ledge. I hit my head, and then my, I hit my ankle, like, because the impact sent me back, and then I ran into a corner with my back, and I just stood there, like, stunned. What just happened? And I don't know why I'm telling you that story, except as I was reflecting on it, I thought there's got to be like an illustration in this somewhere because I'm supposed to speak this morning and I had this weird thing happen. And you know what it made me think of is that's like life too, right? We're just going along and everything is fine. And then all of a sudden we hit that ledge that comes out of nowhere that we've missed maybe for 11 years and we hit it. And then we have an option at that point of what we're going to do at that point. Where are we going to turn? And one good place to always turn is Scripture, right? And I think of times in the past when I would turn to Scripture but not really know where to go or how to go about it. So you just open up the Bible, right? And you look for that verse and you're like, Lord, just speak to me right now. Send me the verse. And sometimes you get the verse and you're like, yes. And it ministers to you. And other times you're like, that's not helpful, And I don't know what to do. And I tried to do what I knew I should do. I tried to go to scripture. And yet, I feel like I'm coming up empty. 
And so I think we've all had those times, right? And I think that's one of the things that we're going to get from walking through the storyline of Scripture this year, is the more that we ingrain this into our minds, and it may not be new information. You guys may be like, I've heard this so many times. But the more that we get this information, the quicker it comes to mind. The quicker that we know where we should turn for help in God's Word. Or we can open it up anywhere and read it and think about how it fits into the story of Scripture and what God's teaching us at any point. It points us to the hope that we really need rather than that one verse taken out of context to help us when we hit our head on that ledge, you know? And usually it's not like the the hitting your head on the ledge that drives you to the Word. It's bigger things than that. We need a bigger foundation. So I'm excited that we're going to grow that foundation, each one of us, this year. So, looking at Von Roberts' book, um, we're just going to jump right into some interactive time together. So, in the introduction, I want to spend just a few minutes, before we jump into chapter one, I want to spend a few minutes looking at the introduction. Right from the very first page, Von Roberts gives us a summary of what this book will be about. So if you want to just even open it up, what is the first premise that he begins his book by? That it's one book. It's like the first words that you read here. So these are not necessarily tricky questions that I'm going to ask you. Um, The Bible is one book. And I think that that's really important because when you start to write a book, you start with the thing that you most want somebody to know, right? The Bible is one book. Now, why is that foundational for understanding Scripture? Why do we need to know that the Bible is one book? So that we don't read it all in individual chunks, but we read it all together in in one, one picture. Yeah. Is that surprising that the Bible is one book? I mean, do you think differently about it? It's, it's all packaged in one book, so I don't know that we necessarily think of it as being more than one book, right? But what are ways that people actually do treat it as though it is not one book? Thinking of the Old and New Testament is completely separate, yeah. Taking references, morals, without looking at how they fit into the context of the rest of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when we just sort of throw a dart into Scripture and hoping to get some sort of inspiration. Yeah. Mm, When you take certain parts of Scripture um, to mean more than other parts because of maybe who wrote them or, or whether you like them sometimes. Yeah. Oh, when you think it's about you. Mm-hmm. Yeah? I've never done that. I don't know. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> so we do have this one book, and it is one book telling one story. And if you're not convinced by that, we're just going to keep trying to drill that in, aren't we? But um, it's not our purpose, right? It's, it's the purpose of the Lord, I think, as we looked at last, last week. But in this one book, we do also want to acknowledge that it is a collection of writings. So it is one book telling one story about one subject. We'll get there. But it's also a collection of writings with different styles, different forms. And so we do need to read our Bibles as though they're one unified book, 
but we also need to read different sections differently. So, for instance, we read poetry different than stories. We do that in our normal everyday life, right? Like if you open up a book and you look at it and you see that it's poetry, you're not going to approach it the same way as your favorite novel. We do this all the time. And yet what's remarkable is that sometimes we open up scripture and we don't do the same. We treat it as though it can all be read the same way because it's one book all packaged together, right? So we we strike this balance. We read different authors in different ways. We read different styles in different ways, and yet recognizing that everything that we read fits into this big story of Scripture. Okay, the next big assertion that the author makes is on page 16, and what is that? There's one author, one author of Scripture. Okay, so how can that be? When I open my Bible and it says that Paul wrote this and Peter wrote this and Isaiah wrote this. All scripture is God-breathed, yes. So it has one grand author throughout. It's all divinely inspired by God. And then he used human, a variety of human authors to actually communicate his word, to write it down and, and give it to us that way. Then Roberts asserts that all of Scripture has one subject in common. What is that one subject? Jesus. And he calls him the king, right? Maybe he just calls it Jesus. Let's see. What did I write down? Um, Yeah. Yeah, Jesus. I was trying to jump ahead. Yeah, Jesus and salvation. One subject is Jesus. Then the last paragraph on page 17, I wanted us to look at for just a minute. He talks about how some people have the idea that God had plan A to save the world, and uh, his original plan was to give people an opportunity to become his people by obeying his law. But they failed, so he scratched his head. (laughs) Right there, you see the flaw, right? Imagine God scratching his head. Um, he came up with another idea, plan B, to save his people by grace through the death of Jesus. I, was, I used to totally think this way. That is the way that I read my Bible for the longest time. I don't know, did any of you guys feel that same way? Yeah. I mean, I think that is not, and even, even if we know differently and, and are convinced differently, we can still kind of fall back into that error of thinking, right? But if we think that way, what does that communicate about God? That he's not God, at least not the God that he's revealed himself to be, right? Because he, in his word, tells us that he is all-knowing, that he's sovereign, that he doesn't change, right? Yes. Any other flaws with seeing God's word this way? We think that we can please God. Because that's what we think his first plan was, to please him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Separating God into the God without mercy, the God of the Old Testament, and the God with mercy, and um, seeing God in two different ways. Yes. You have a God that can fail, then there's no truth, there's no authority, everything's left to chance. There's no hope. Yes. Right. 
I mean, there's just so, we could just go on and on, right? Because there's the fact that we can fail God then and that he has to then resort his plans. I don't know. That's not really, when it comes down to it, that's not who I want to follow. I need something bigger than me. I need somebody bigger. Like, I, can, I will ruin God's plans if it's up to me. So I need something bigger than that. And I need to believe that everything in this, in this book doesn't change because I want to believe that the promises that are made are going to hold true. And I think that's what his word communicates all the time. So, um, Yeah, so when I used to think this way, it caused me all sorts of problems and confusion when I would open my Bible. And sometimes it would cause me so much confusion that I would sort of shut my Bible again and put it away because it was like, I don't understand how this all works. And one of the main areas of confusion for me was works versus faith. And if we view God in this way that his plan changed and it used to be that people had to earn their salvation and now they don't, well, then where does that leave me now? How do works and faith work together? Well, if the Bible has always been teaching the same story, the same, um, the same plan of salvation, then that's something to stake our hope on because it's always been by faith. And we've never been able to earn that salvation. When I became convinced that the subject of the whole Bible is Jesus, then things started coming together. And that's when God's word started coming alive to me. That's when I wanted to pick it up and start reading it. Because I was like, oh my goodness, look at... I mean, don't you feel that way all the time when you come to to church on Sunday morning and you see things woven together and the connections made and you're like, wow, this is amazing. And, and that's what we get as we start to see the one subject running throughout. So that's why I think what we're doing this fall is going to be so beneficial. Exploring the message of Scripture and how God's plan has always been the same. He never changes, neither does his word or his purpose, is so encouraging, so helpful for us. It's what we need. It's the good news we need to hear. And it also helps us to be better students of the word, which in turn helps us to love and obey the Lord more. Okay, so we have the one main subject. It's Jesus. And then Roberts narrows the focus a little bit more. And what does he propose then is the theme of the whole Bible? The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, yes. And so then he gives us a little one-sentence way to remember what the whole story, what he sees the whole story of the Bible is. Yes. Yes, okay, one book, I can't repeat all of that, because one book, one author, one subject, which is God's plan of salvation in Jesus, yes, okay? Yeah, I think we're going to see that over and over and over as we go through God's people, in God's place, under God's rule and blessing, yeah, so... That sentence is great because that expounds on that one short sentence that we're going to be kind of like plugging information in if we want to look at it that way. We're going to look at how the kingdom of God, um, the the idea that Scripture tells the story of the kingdom of God, and it does it through God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. And, And then as we go along, we've got that chart 
in our, that was handed out to us. And as we fill that in, we're going to be able to, to really trace that story throughout Scripture. So I had a power, a, a slide of all of the different sections of the book I was going to put up, but the PowerPoint's not working today. So instead, um, you can just remember back to page 22, where we have a Bible overview, the Old Testament, the New Testament, and we're going to break the Bible down into eight different sections. So today, we start with number one, the pattern of the kingdom. And so we go into chapter one, looking at the pattern of the kingdom. We begin in Genesis 1. So here's where we're going to start looking at a few of the study questions in your study guides, if you want to have those handy. I'm going to read Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In this one verse, it's just like, I don't know, Less than 10 words, right? Or about 10 words. What do we learn in, in this one verse of the Bible that we can probably quote from memory because we've heard it? But what does it tell us if we unpack it and think about the implications of these words? God was here before anything else. Mm-hmm. There was a starting place for the heavens, for the earth, and it was initiated by God. He created these things. Heavens and earth seems to be comprehensive. Yes. So if you can think of something that you would like, I don't, this is what my children would do, right? Well, let's see. Can I think of something that I think might not fall into the category of heaven or earth? Let's not go down that road because what it's meant to convey is that God created everything. Everything that we know, see, touch, can think of, can explore, can find, can determine is all created by God. So we didn't have anything to do with it, and it was intentional on his part. I don't think I've thought of it quite that way. Yeah, he didn't create people first, huh, to, to help him with all this so that we could give ourselves credit later. What else do we learn in these verses? God is outside of time. Yes. Eternal. God is involved in creation. Yes. He, exactly. He desired to create. He is creative. So those of us who our creative nature runs strong, you're created in the image of God, right? He is the source. He created everything from nothing. Can you wrap your mind around that? I mean, we can't. We have no concept of that. Yeah. He's Lord because he created. So all of creation belongs to him. So if, if there's things that happen that we don't like, sometimes we go, why would the Lord allow that to happen? Well, we, I mean, we may not know all the answers, and this may not always bring us comfort, but because it's his creation, and he can do what he wants. But also, I mean, as we walk through, we're going to see this, but he's, he, his creation's good, and he's good, and so we've got to believe that whatever he allows to happen to his creation is ultimately good. 
including us. Okay, I know we've jumped a little bit outside these verses, but I mean, we also, let's see. Um, I think we've got most of the things I thought of. He's all-powerful. We were definitely saying that. He's supreme. I mean, it's, isn't that amazing that out of this one little verse, we learn so much about the creator of the universe, and then we just continue to go from there. So I'm going to read um, Genesis 2, or Genesis 1, 2 through 25. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw the light was good. God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit-bearing trees in which there's seed, according to its kind, on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth, above the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Or, uh, be, full, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Okay, so our study guide asked us to note any repeated words or phrases or ideas. What did you note in these verses? Repeated words, ideas, phrases. And God said, let there be, yes. Attached to that, and it was so. So everything that he spoke happened as he spoke it. Mm -hmm. God made, it's repeated. 
There was evening and there was morning. According to their kind, God saw that it was good. God called. That's pretty comprehensive. Yes. Okay. What do we learn then about God in these verses? What he created was good. Yes. He alone creates, and he creates out of nothing by his word. God speaks, and it's accomplished. Isn't that amazing? I mean, I can't speak much of anything into being. (laughs) He was very precise and very orderly. So there, on the other hand, we talked about, like, creative people. I mean, not that you're not orderly or precise, but then... um, generalizations here, people. Um, So, but, you know, those of you who are very precise, very orderly, you're created in God's image, too. He named things and he placed things. Yes. He finds satisfaction in what he creates. I like that. He created it for himself. That was the only measure of success. So he made it, and he decided it was good. It was for, for him, for his glory. Yeah. He was involved in every aspect of creation. Yes. His infiniteness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it was comprehensive. It, and everything. Yeah, I mean, that idea of, of his creation is, in, is infinite. Yeah, we can't even, you know, you see those uh, pictures of, of space or things like that, and you try to wrap your mind. I mean, just to try to wrap your mind around the state of Oregon is kind of mind-blowing. And then you take it from there, and it just gets bigger and bigger. And then... Once you try to figure that out, then think about how God transcends all of that. Yeah, we can't. We can't. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, so he took action. He, he created and then separated, created and made, created and grouped. Whereas, I mean, he could have, obviously, we know from reading this, he could have just said, let the earth be created, and boom, it all pops into place. But he didn't. He, allowed, he, he did it, as we said, with a, with a process, orderly. Yeah. He is astoundingly creative, amazingly creative. His wisdom in what he created. Yes. It's all interconnected. Yes. Intricate and detailed. Yeah. 
you know, this chapter of Genesis is so familiar to us, and it's easy to just kind of blow right past it, isn't it? But what a great thing to just sit and think about it and just take it in and, and look at how we can just peel back layers and think of new insights from it um, to, to observe, as Sue was saying, the, the creativity of his creation and the, just the colors and textures and, and all of that and to know that that's the God that we serve. And that's it. That's an appealing God to serve who loves all these things that we love too. Okay, uh, what do we learn about what God has made? Maybe we've already covered that. Anything that you want to add to what we learn about what God has made? That He's made days, years, and seasons. So, like, what's the implication of that? He, he created time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which helps us then, I mean, in a, in a sense, it helps us grapple with the idea of time not being slow to him. You know, that those, some of those concepts that we need to know as we dig deep and really grapple with hard truths of Scripture, that he created time, and we understand it in a different way than he does. He made things so that they could reproduce. Yeah, isn't that interesting? Mm-hmm. So he did create everything, and yet he allows creation then to sustain itself as he's sustaining it too. So his creation reflects the fact that he has a beginning, a sequence, and an end. And that he will get to the end. And so when we feel stuck and when we feel uh, like things aren't progressing the way that we'd like, we need to remember that he will create, or he will complete his creation, just like he completed that initial creation. Okay, so then, what do we learn about, uh, about how he made the world? We've totally covered this. He spoke it into being. Did you have something to add, though, Angelina? So he created out of darkness into light. All of his creation was made in the light. Mm-hmm. There's a good theme there. You could keep try, tracking that one through. Yes, good. He created everything to fit together in harmony. Yes. Mm-hmm. We see, I mean, isn't that really apparent here? Just the harmony, the unity of everything that's being created. He was pleased with everything that he ever made. So, like, he didn't get halfway through a project and rip it all out. But he spoke it into being, and it was good. Yes. Okay, um... Would somebody be willing to read Genesis one twenty six to two three? Thank you. So God created humans last day six, right? What do these verses say about humans? What do we learn? They're made in His image. Yes. There are distinct genders, male and female. He created them. 
They have needs. They have needs. Yes. So we see that in the fact that they need food. They were made to rule and keep. They were good in God's eyes. Very good even, yes. Mm -hmm. They were made to reproduce and to work. They were the last of what God created. Mm-hmm. Yep. God spoke to humans. Mm-hmm. So he, we said they were made to work. What jobs were they given? To be fruitful and to subdue the land. Okay, so what does it mean to be fruitful and multiply? Have babies. (laughs) Like, I mean, it does. Because if we go and we look at, so I did a word search. I did that just by pulling up Bible Gateway and typing in be, be fruitful. And actually the results are really interesting because this term, be fruitful and multiply, it runs throughout the Old Testament. So if we were to look at Genesis 9:11 we would see that God told Noah I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters that's not the right verse um well take my word for it <laughs> he told Noah to be fruitful and multiply it's true Nine one. I wrote two two ones instead of one one. Uh, okay. God blessed Noah and his sons and, and said to them, "Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth." There it is. I'm not making this stuff up. Okay. And then Genesis. If you guys just want to, you don't have to turn unless you want to. If you want to jot it down, you can. Uh, Genesis thirty five eleven. There's the eleven. That's where it's supposed to come from. Um, God tells Jacob again. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. Um, we also see it in Exodus 1, 7. We see that that's exactly what happened to the Israelites. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. So God told them to, and that's what happened. And then we would see that, that this idea of be fruitful continues throughout. Um, Israel was promised that if they obeyed God, they would be fruitful and multiply, become great. But then, if we, if we notice that this term is not said again in the New Testament, it's only in the Old Testament. So what, are we not supposed to be fruitful and multiply anymore? What do you guys think? Any ideas? Yes, Holly. Yes. So that's exactly it. The, the mandate changes from be fruitful and multiply in the sense of have lots of descendants to bear fruit. And we see that in the Old Testament also, but in the New Testament. So starting in Psalm 1-3, um, the idea of the fruitful tree, right? Blessed is the man who 
walks not in the counsel of the wicked. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. So he's bearing fruit, but I don't think it's talking about children here, right? And then Isaiah 11.1 1, And this is a prophecy of Jesus, right? Talking about what is to come. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Well, Jesus didn't have children, not in the sense that that Genesis, how we would normally understand Genesis, right? Spiritual children, many. (laughs) We are all of his spiritual children if we belong to him. But so there's that idea of bearing fruit. And then... Um, The very familiar passage in John 15, right, about the vine and bearing fruit. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And then we would see the same, the same um, idea in Romans 7, that if we are in Christ, we're going to bear fruit. So this command to be fruitful and multiply, I think we need to think bigger than have a lot of children, right? Because still today, we are still under this creation mandate of being fruitful. And we do that by living fruitful lives. That can involve having children and making disciples of them, right? But it can also involve all sorts of other facets of life. So what are ways that we see fruitfulness today? What are ways that we can think about this command of be fruitful? In church, Yes, what are ways that we see fruitfulness in the church? Yes. So the church comes together to encourage one another, to um, teach one another, to uh, maybe collect funds for, the people who, that are in, for people who are in need, uh, to live together, and that's bearing fruit. Yes. Being missionaries, telling people who don't know about Jesus. Yes. We abide in Christ, and that's what the John 15 passage tells us, is how we bear fruit. By living slow and steady lives, just one foot in front of the other following Christ. That's right. Yeah, so John 15 tells us that if we are on the vine, if we're in the vine, we can't help but bear fruit. That's just the natural outflowing of our lives. The repentance, humility, allowing the word to grow in our lives. Mm -hmm. The fruit of the Spirit. So... It does matter what we do, doesn't it? I mean, that's what Scripture tells us is that there's, there's a natural outflowing. But it starts from what's happening in, in our hearts. We bear fruit in our hearts first as we are in Christ. Yes. Good.
So I just think that that's so important for us to see this verse and to think broader than we often do when we see it, and to think about what it means to bear fruit. So people are, are commanded to be fruitful and to multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. So God created the world. He created people. Everything that he created was good. It all worked together according to God's purposes. Everything was as it should be. There was only growth. Can you imagine? So I am not much of a gardener. But I kind of think that if everything I ever planted only flourished, it would inspire me to get out and garden. Because that's not my experience. I am an expert at killing plants. But if they only flourished, I think I would want to plant them. This sounds remarkable. So yes, their job was to work. But their work was fruitful every time. Everything only flourished. Can you imagine living somewhere where there was no decay? There was no rot. There was no death. There was nothing working against you. Everything was only working the way that it should be. That is amazing. But we know that per- this perfection won't stay. It's not really a spoiler because we live with the sinful nature. We live in, in, the, in the curse, with the effects of the curse. So I'm not surprising you. We live every day with the effects of the curse that is to come with the fall next week. Uh, it's impossible really to imagine all of this world just working together in perfect harmony and having everything work together the way that it's supposed to. But it's really fun to think about. What if that's what creation was at this point? It was very good. It was all as it was supposed to. So then we get to the next section of Genesis 2. And we so far we've had kind of an overview of God's creation, like almost as though we're like hanging out in the sky and watching it all happen. We're getting the big picture. And then Genesis 2 zooms in and it highlights God's greatest creation, man and woman. And the author kind of retells the story from a slightly different vantage point. So from Genesis 2, uh, 4 through 25, I won't read all of those verses, but what do we learn about the relationship between God and human beings? Creator-creation distinction. Yeah, God's the creator, we're the creation. He's the sole provider. He's personal and involved with his creation, with his people. He sets boundaries for them. Yeah. So he didn't just care for them, but he gave them specific rules and jobs, work to be, to be done. He provided for them beyond their needs. He gave them trees just for enjoyment, for sight. Created by breathing his own breath into them. Yes. Yes. Yes, it has implications that run throughout. God's presence is with his people always which is developed further as we get further into the story. Yes. Mm -hmm. 
Right, so everything else was spoken into being, right? But with people, he actually formed them with his touch. Yes. He's the author of life, breathing, speaking, his word. Yes. Yes, that's great. And so even today, in, in the new covenant, he's still creating from his word. Okay, what do we notice about the relationship between man and woman then? There's no shame between them. Yeah. They're a team, they're to work together. Yeah. Man was lonely without woman, one flesh. Woman came from man. They were made uniquely. There was a hierarchy. Yes. But a partnership at the same time. Yes. So, I mean, here, when we get to this verse, sometimes our, you know, we just have so many influences that come into our life, and we can read this verse and feel like, sticky territory. I'm not sure how I feel about this. My, like, you know, uh, feminist world worldview that I can't get away from might be fighting with what, I don't know, you know, we can feel conflicted about this. Even as believers who, who want to believe the word of God, it can still make us feel like, ah, I don't know, the idea that woman was created to be a helper, that she was created from man, might sit uncomfortably with some of us because that's the message that we get around us, right? But let's, we need to go back and kind of try to separate from our feelings, our, our ideologies, our understandings, our baggage that might be associated with men and women and roles and, and all of that, the relationships between the two. And um, all that I want to say this morning is that what's the state of creation at this point? If we look at verse 24 and 25, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So what's happening here is perfect harmony. There is a, a, there's a, there is a hierarchy here, right? Man was created first and woman was created from him. And the woman was created to complete him, to be a helper. Not to like live subserviently or be abused by him or you know, anything like that. But what we have here is a perfect union. Two people working together for the good of one another. And so we can have ideas about man and woman and separate roles without it being a negative, ugly thing. It was actually God's design, and it works together good when there's not the, the role of sin involved, right? Um, so we see that everything is good at this point. There is no sin involved in this relationship. There's just man and woman in perfect harmony and perfect unity, living the way that God intends. And I think that that's what we should aspire to when we think of this, rather than um, struggling with trying to figure out how to, uh, how to, I don't know what I was going to say. But, you know, rather than, think of, rather than put our focus on what, what our baggage is or how we want to defend this or whatever it might be, standing up for the values has a role. But when we come to these verses, we should just think, wow, 
What an amazing thing to have a, a marital relationship that's not marred by the stain of sin and to work together perfectly. What a beautiful thing. Um, okay, so as we begin to understand the storyline of Scripture and we see that this is all one book telling one unified story, we start to see themes and patterns running throughout. And we've already looked at one, the idea of be fruitful. But this story... This first story in the, in the Bible, the pattern of the kingdom, is so important because it sets the stage for the rest of the book. The Bible begins with the story of creation, and then uh, it ends with the story of new creation, right? So anytime you have bookends to something, it should really tell you that that's what it's all about, right? Creation to new creation. Along the way, we see the pattern of creation over and over throughout the Bible. We have this first creation account. Then we have the fall, which we'll look at next week. And then the result of the fall is that things keep getting worse and worse and worse until God does what? Sends the flood, right? And he basically destroys his creation. But then what does he do? He doesn't leave it that way. He recreates. And so we see the pattern of creation happen again after the flood. And there's creation language all over the place. If we were to turn to Genesis 8, the waters recede and the earth is separated from the waters again and dry ground appears. And we see the idea of seven days happening over and over and over. And then um, God renews his covenant instru- or his uh, creation mandate with Noah tells him to be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. So we see creation repeating. And then if we were to continue on in Genesis, we would see that God creates a people out of Abraham. And it's maybe not quite as clear, but again, the the command there is to be fruitful and multiply. And so there's the idea of, of a creation of a people. God's still creating. And then... Um, God reiterates that to Jacob, and he becomes Israel, and they are fruitful and multiply and create. Then the creation pattern, we saw it last year, if those of you who were in the Exodus study, when the tabernacle is being built, the language is full of creation imagery. There is a creation of the tabernacle. Same thing with the temple. So much of the language and the imagery is the same. God is creating this pattern of creation and then fall and then recreation keeps happening over and over and over throughout Scripture. And then um, we're kind of out of time. But if we were to turn to Isaiah 40, this should not be a surprise because I didn't know how I would manage time very well this morning because this is sort of an experiment the first couple of times. But... Um, maybe just dot down Isaiah 40, and then if you have some time later today or something, you could go and, and look at how um, God is promising to Israel to deliver them out of captivity in Babylon. And for 15 chapters, there's a whole lot of creation imagery. He's going to recreate his people. And um, when he delivers them out of out of exile. And of course, that makes sense because it fits with this pattern of scripture. God is active in the world. He creates and hum- humanity and sin destroy and God judges and he allows people to experience the consequences of the rebellion, but he doesn't leave them there because he recreates. And this pattern continues. And then we get to the New Testament where God creates once again. This time he creates out of nothing and by his word alone as savior because Jesus is born.
He's created in the womb of this young woman, right? And he's born fully man and yet fully God, perfect and sinless. And he breaks the pattern because he always chooses what's right. And when he is faced with temptation from Satan, just like they were in the garden, he chooses what's right. He chooses to obey. And so he can perfectly stand the test. He obeys his father, and he can stand in our place because he's fully human, and yet he's perfectly fulfilled the requirements. And humanity tries to destroy him in fitting this pattern, They try to destroy him by putting him to death on the cross, but Jesus prevails, and he gets up from the dead and overcomes sin and death. And if we put our faith in him, recognizing our need for him to save us from our sins, we are new creations. This pattern of creation continues. That's what God's word calls us, is new creation. And then the pattern of creation is continued in the church also, because God creates a people for himself. So It's a community of believers united together by the gospel. So we have all these little new new creations forming one new creation, which is Jesus' bride, the church. And if we continue reading to the end of Scripture, we find that God is not done creating. One more creation is coming. He's preparing his new creation, one where his bride will live with him forever in perfect peace, in perfect unity, in perfection once again even better than the garden that we were just looking at. If we belong to Christ, we have the promise of eternity spent in this new creation where everything is as it should be, where creation once again only flourishes and never decays. God's plan is very good. It all exists to bring him glory. His pattern of creation shows not only that he's the most loving, holy, good creator, far greater than we could ever imagine. He created all these things for his glory. And so we know that he will see his creation through to the end. That is the pattern of creation, and it sets the storyline for all of Scripture. So I'm going to pray and then turn you over to discussing your groups. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your creation that we get to live in it, and we look forward to the day when we will once, or when we will... Um, be able to live in perfect creation for all of eternity. We pray, Lord, that you would just cause these things to dwell in us richly to to help us understand your word more clearly, more deeply, that we might follow you more more closely and love you more dearly. We thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.